All right. Well, if you ask a few people, you know, you kind of got a cross-section of the, of the world, and you asked a few people kind of to describe what happens after death, what happens to you after you die, you would probably get a lot of different responses. Uh, some people would tell you that after you die, um, you'll be reincarnated, and you'll come back as uh, either promoted or demoted, depending on how you lived your life. And so some of you are wondering maybe who you uh, offended in your, in your previous life, you know. But some teach that it's based on your good works. You'll come back either as a better uh, entity or a, a lesser entity. Some tell you that uh, the highest goal you can have is to kind of just be absorbed into the universe and become a drop of water into the ocean and, and your consciousness seep into the, the greater consciousness. Uh, some say that there's nothing after death. There's no hope beyond death. There's just black. There's just darkness. And so you better get whatever you can get, take whatever you can take in this life, because because this is as good as it gets. And so you would think that Christians, if you just gathered Christians together and were reading the same Bible, you would think that you would get kind of a standard response among Christians for what happens after you die. But the reality is, Christians seem just as confused about uh, life after death uh, than uh, as everybody else. And so a few years ago, Maria Shriver, uh, ex-wife of, uh, of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, wrote a book for children called What's Heaven? I think Maria Shriver's views on heaven probably sum up a lot of what Western Christians uh, kind of believe about heaven. And she says, heaven is something you believe in, a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. If you're good throughout your life, then you get to go to heaven. And so you hear that. It's a, it's a works-based approach. You do good things. Good people go to heaven. And of course, we define good on our own terms. Uh, somebody that's good and moral and upright as we define it, of course, they're going to go to this place called heaven where it's all butterflies and everybody's sitting on a cloud and, and, and all these things. And, 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 and Maria Shriver's story, this young girl whose great-grandmother mother has passed, she, she says to her great-grandmother, I want you to know that even though you're no longer here, your spirit will always be alive in me. And so um, maybe you go to Christian funerals sometimes and you hear things like, well, God needed another angel. And so he took this person to be his angel. And um, biblically, I mean, people, humans don't become angels. That's not something that happens. That's not a thing, but it's something that gets said a lot, okay? Um, you might hear something like, oh, they're not really gone. They're right here with us, but where are they then, okay? And so what, what, what does happen to us after we die? What is our hope, and, and, and what difference does it make? I mean, we might say, well, what difference does it make? What happens to us after we die? And, and, and the reality is an understanding of our destination greatly impacts uh, the, the, the path that we take to get to that destination. So if, if we know where we're going, that affects uh, how we get there. And so it's important that we have a clear picture of what our biblical hope is. I hope that at the end of this message, um, you'll have hopefully a, a, a clarified vision of what happens to us after we die uh, based on Scripture, okay? And so uh, a lot of our ideas about death and beyond don't come from Scripture. They just kind of come from what we would like to be the case. And, and so I'm going to do my best to, to share God's Word with you today. Um, so what does God's Word say about death? What does God's Word say about life after death? What does God's Word say about our ultimate hope? Now, obviously, we're not going to be able to fit everything in for the next few minutes, but we'll just do the best we can. And then what difference does that make for the way we live our lives Sunday through Saturday uh, in the here and now. And so in Daniel 12, at the end of the book, Daniel's going to close and he's going to talk about uh, this resurrection. 
He says that, that there's going to become this time at the end when, uh, when there's going to be a resurrection day and some will be raised to eternal life. Others will be raised to shame and contempt. And he says that the wise will shine like the stars in the heaven. And so it just got me to, to thinking, you know, wise and shine and give God the glory, you know. And so the wise will shine like the stars and those who pointed others to righteousness will shine like the skies. And so, so taking Daniel's idea of wisdom, we want to ask how does a wise person live as we, we see, you know, truth from Daniel 10, 11, and 12. And what I'd like for you to hear today is that the wise live today in light of Resurrection Day. Um, resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fundamental uh, event uh, of, of, of history. And it anticipates this event that's coming at the end of time as we know it, the climax where everything's headed, where everyone will be raised. Everyone will be resurrected and some will go on uh, to live on uh, in, in, in eternal life forever, and some will, uh, Daniel says, go to shame and contempt. And the wise live today in light of Resurrection Day. All right, and so uh, let's, do, let's kind of set this passage up. The setting of Daniel 10, 11, and 12 is this is the, this is the last uh, bit of visionary material that Daniel receives. Um, and, and, and this vision that Daniel receives really builds on and completes and climaxes all of the other visions that Daniel has received. So just a quick overview. You might remember from Daniel 2, Daniel had a vision. I'm so thankful that we remember that. He had a vision. Uh, actually, Nebuchadnezzar had a vision. Yeah, you, you caught me. Nebuchadnezzar had a vision in Daniel 2, and it was of those statues that represented human kingdoms. And then he saw the stone that was cut without hands, and that stone came and it crushed the statue, and that stone ended up turning into a mountain that filled the whole world. And that was a picture of God's kingdom ruling over all human empires, human kingdoms, and God's kingdom filling uh, this world. And then there was a similar vision in Daniel 7, where, uh, where Daniel saw all these beasts, and they were oppressive, and they were unjust and they were scary, and the fourth one was worse than all of them. And, 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 and somehow the Son of Man figure overcomes the beast and is exalted to the right hand of the Ancient of Days and somehow exalts all the saints of the people of the Most High along with him. And they go from being suffering under the beast to being overcomers over the beast. And then in Daniel 9, there's this 70 weeks that we talked about last Sunday, 70 times 7, where... Um, where there's this period of, of suffering and then the end comes and, and somehow uh, there's atonement for sin that's brought about by the suffering of this Messiah and, and, and somehow this uh, Messiah figure is going to overcome uh, the, this end time enemy of God's people. And, and then we take Daniel 10 through 12 and, and we're going to hear about the same stuff. We're going to hear about events that are going to unfold uh, in the next few centuries after Daniel's life all the way down to the end of time and how, uh, and how, how the Lord uh, wins and how God is guiding history towards this very good, very, uh, very wonderful climax that we, we get the, the word here in, in, um, in Daniel 12. That climax is resurrection, okay? Um, so here's Daniel uh, at the end of his life. He, he, Daniel began with this teenage boy being torn away from his home in Jerusalem and being taken to uh, Babylon as an exile. Now here we are 70 years later, and Daniel's an old man. And um, some of his people, this is the third year of King Cyrus' reign, so it's about 536 B.C., and some, people, um, some of his people have already returned home to Jerusalem. 
They've already gone back and they started rebuilding. But Daniel's sitting here. He's, he's chosen, for whatever reason, to stay in Babylon. And, 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 and I think part of what's going on here is he's looking around and he's thinking, surely a few of us going back to Jerusalem to rebuild some broken down walls and a broken down temple, surely the prophetic promises had more of a fulfillment than this. Surely there was more. And what he's going to see is that return from exile is really a picture of and a glimpse of and a foretaste of this even better, this even greater, this even truer deliverance that's to come. And that's what he's going to call Resurrection Day. And so the wise live today in light of Resurrection Day. And so the first thing I'd like for us to see in chapter 10 is that wise people, wise people recognize the reality of spiritual warfare. Wise people recognize the reality of spiritual warfare. We're um, in between today and Resurrection Day, uh, there's conflict. You and I live in a world that's at war. John 10.10 says the enemy, the thief, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so there is such a thing as spiritual warfare. And in our day, we're um, we're also... um, intellectual and smart and all these kinds of things. And we've, we've heard wingnuts kind of talk about spiritual warfare and make a big deal out of Satan and demons and stuff. A lot of us, we, we kind of kind of blush or we have a hard time talking about spiritual warfare because we don't want to sound crazy. Do you ever find that that's the case? That maybe you don't want to talk about spiritual warfare because you don't want to be one of those Christians that's always making a big deal out of demons and devils and stuff like that. C.S. Lewis wrote a long time ago, he said well, there's two equal and opposite errors that we fall into when it comes to devils. Either we deny their existence or to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And so there's some believers out there that just are t- totally don't have a clue that there's such a thing as spiritual warfare, that there's such a thing as an enemy that wants to destroy your life. Um, and then there's other believers out there that are so caught up in the idea of, of the evil one and the devil and demons that they're thinking more about demons than they are about Jesus. And they're seeing a demon behind every uh, bush and around every corner. And I, I like the way Chip Ingram puts it. He says, the devil isn't the explanation for everything, but he can, uh, he can twist anything. Okay, So he, he, doesn't, he doesn't have so much power that he causes all these events in, in your life, but he can take anything that happens and run with it and twist it and distort it. Okay, So there is such a thing as spiritual warfare. How does that play out in Daniel 10? Well, Daniel sets the stage for chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true. And it was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So Daniel gets this vision, this word, that there's going to be this great conflict. And the conflicts he's been hearing about have been conflicts between empires and human kingdoms. But what we're going to see is behind all those earthly, visible conflicts, there's spiritual conflicts. So he says, I was mourning, verse Two, I was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat, no wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So Daniel is praying and persevering in prayer for 21 days. Anybody ever pray for 21 seconds and wonder why God hasn't answered your prayers lately? And Daniel's sitting here, he's fasting for 21 days. He's praying for 21 days. He hasn't anointed himself for 21 days, and his roommates are like, dude, you can go ahead and anoint yourself now, man. It's been long enough, but he's going to stay with this, okay? He's persisting here, and what happens later is really interesting. He has this great vision, verse 5. 
I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz about his waist. His body was like beryl, his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms were like, and legs were like the gleam of burnished bronze. The sound of his words was like the sound of a multitude. So he gets this vision of this incredible heavenly being. Some say this is a picture of Jesus before his incarnation. Others say this is an angel. Whoever it is, this is a heavenly being. And, and, and Daniel sees this guy, and he's amazed, and he falls down all the strength that sat from his body. Um, he, is, he just falls down on his face, and this heavenly being comes over to him and says in verse 10, A hand touched me and, and set me trembling on my hands and knees, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you. Stand upright, for now I've been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. He said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and you humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for, the year, is for what is yet to come. What in the world did we just read? Okay, and so... This heavenly being comes to Daniel and says, hey, I was dispatched to you from the moment you started praying 21 days ago. But on my way, I got tangled up with the prince of Persia. Who is the prince of Persia? Apparently, um, from the context here, uh, this is a phrase for like this ruling like, demonic power over this geographical region of Persia. And he says, I was hemmed up fighting this demon, this devil, but then Michael, we know Michael's an archangel. Michael came and he helped me and we both fought the guy. And now I've just now made my way to, to you. And so, so what Daniel is receiving here in visionary form is that he's hearing from a heavenly messenger that God sent his answer to you 21 days ago. And all this 21 days you've been praying, there's been a fight going on in heaven that you couldn't see and that you didn't know about. And, and this clues us in uh, to a couple of things. Um, that behind all visible conflicts on earth, whether that's between uh, nations or whether it's between husband and wife on a Sunday morning getting ready for church, anybody have some of that going on this morning? Whether that's between you and your kids, uh, behind all those conflicts that we can see, there are dark spiritual forces at play. Our prayers affect how that conflict is going and our prayers are affected by how that conflict is going. There's even high-ranking uh, angelic beings and demonic beings that kind of have uh, say-so over certain geographical areas. And so maybe you've noticed that certain parts of the world, maybe let's just take our town. Maybe we've noticed that kind of certain things keep happening generationally over and over and over again. And, and some of that we can turn around um, by doing good works and by, and, by, and by doing nice things and letting our light shine. But some things, you know, Jesus said, some demons only come out by prayer and fasting. Sometimes there's a spiritual warfare component to stuff that we see playing out in our lives. And we don't want to get goofy with this, but we have to acknowledge that there's such a thing as evil. And some of the struggles even you go through individually, the struggle I've been walking through for the past few months or year, there's a spiritual component to that. Yeah, there's an emotional component. There's a physical component. But there's also a spiritual component that, that there's an enemy that knows my weakness, who started ringing that bell, who started hammering on that weakness, and he knows yours, okay? And so let's not, let's not um, underestimate evil, but let's also not underestimate the authority of the risen Christ, okay? And so evil's real. 
Evil is out to kill, steal, and destroy. But here's the other thing. Jesus is risen. Jesus is alive. Jesus has overcome all spirits and powers and principalities and powers. And, and you have the authority by the risen Christ to, to do battle. And one of the biggest ways we do battle is in prayer. So you're wondering, like, why don't I want to read the Bible? Well, I guess I'm just not feeling it today. What if there's somebody that doesn't want you to read God's Word? Man, I wonder why I'm so... Uh, angry all the time. What if there's, what if there's some, something at work on your emotions? Well, I, I, I just don't know um, why I just don't feel like being a Christian right now. Well, what if there's a spiritual battle and it's going to take spiritual resources to get through that? So in Ephesians 6, uh, Paul tells us, and it's a great passage, read it, memorize it, think about it. He says, you gotta, he says, we're in a battle, people, and the battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's not your spouse. It's not your kid. It's not your parents. It's not your neighbor. It's not your coworker. It's not that person in your Sunday school class. It's it's spirits and principalities and dark forces. So he says, gird up, man, and remind yourself of the truth and, and hang on to faith and study God's word, the sword of your spirit. Clothe your, your mind with the helmet of salvation. Take the sword of the spirit, praying always, he says. So I love the way N.T. Wright puts this. He says, it's, of course, a surprise to many people that there's a struggle at all. He says, yes, they think we find it difficult to practice Christianity. We find it hard to forgive. We find it hard to pray, to resist temptation, to learn more about the faith. But as far as they're concerned, that's the end of it. They've never thought their small struggles might be part of a larger campaign. And he says that that's the truth for in most major conflicts. The frontline soldiers don't know everything else that's going on. It's the job of the generals to know everything that's going on. But at least frontline soldiers know that something is going on and that their bit is part of that larger whole. That's the perspective that every Christian needs to maintain as we hold our bit of the line against the attack. Look, we don't see all the pieces. Daniel didn't see this heavenly struggle that was going on. There's a war in heaven right now that we cannot see. Daniel couldn't see it. But your job is to hold the line. Your job is to hold your little piece of ground, trusting God, praying to God, crying out to God, and when you've done all you can do, stand. So don't underestimate evil. Also don't underestimate the risen Christ. Between now and your final destination will be warfare. You're going to be tempted. You're going to have struggles. So often the enemy comes at you head on. He's called the adversary for a reason. Sometimes he comes at you head on and it's obvious. He's also called the father of lies. He comes at you with deceit and with confusion. He also comes at you with temptation and with seduction. So it might be helpful to think, if I was the devil, how would I come at me? How would I take me out if I was him? And you need to share that with people in your group. You need to share that with people you trust. Share that with your Christian friends and say, hey, let's watch each other's back. Let's watch this weak area. Let's pray for one another. I, wanna, I, wanna, I don't want to be a, a guy that's just walking around a battlefield uh, not aware that I'm in a battle. Spiritual war is going on. Next, the wise acknowledge a sovereign God who's guiding history towards a goal. Chapter 11, in chapter 11, Daniel gives this very, he records this very, very vivid, very, very specific vision where he gets this, the, the God gives him this um, understanding of things that are going to happen over the next three or four hundred years and even to the end of time. John Calvin said that, that uh, Daniel 11 is impossible to preach, and so I'm just going to defer to John Calvin, okay? And we're going to just kind of give a brief, brief, brief overview. What happens in Daniel 11 is, is he's told that there's, there's this prince of Persia, and after that there's going to be, after the Persian Empire, there's going to be this Greek Empire. And he really vividly describes Alexander the Great. 
And then he describes how Alexander the Great, the great from, from Greece, his kingdom is broken up into four pieces. And then Daniel focuses on the pieces that really affect Israel the most. His vision, he hears about this northern king and the southern king. The northern king would have been the Seleucid kingdom based out of Syria. The southern king would have been the Ptolemies based out of Egypt. And he talks about their wars with one another and how Israel's just kind of trapped in the middle between those two. But then Daniel's told by this heavenly being that there's going to be this, um, there's going to be this king of the north uh, who's going to be worse than everybody else and he's going uh, to oppress God's people and he's going to defile the temple. And, and if you were living in around 165 B.C., you would have had no doubt that the king that Daniel was told about was this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes who claimed himself to be God in the flesh and who, who, who wanted to uh, sacrifice a pig in the altar and the temple and who wanted to, uh, who wanted to desecrate the temple and, and, uh, and, and the, Jewish, the Jews weren't having it and they rose up against him. And then if you were living in the first century, you would have said, no, this guy is this because it kind of morphs into this end time figure of this this deceiver and this wicked world leader who's opposed to the people of God and and and, and if you were in the Roman Empire you would have said no it's definitely Rome that Daniel's talking about it's definitely um, uh, it's definitely uh, one of those emperors and 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 since then there's been a number of figures world figures who kind of fit the bill of this guy that opposes God's people and opposes goodness but through all of that. God's sovereign hand has guided history. God is so sovereign that hundreds of years before the fact, he laid out to Daniel specific world events that were going to happen. God is so sovereign. We've seen him throughout the book raise up kings and kingdoms and bring down kings and kingdoms. And that sovereign God that's guiding all of history towards a very good end, he's also guiding your individual life. And so a wise person acknowledges that there's such a thing as, as, as spiritual warfare. A wise person acknowledges that there is a sovereign God who's guiding this universe somewhere good. And he's guiding my life as well. And then next, the wise focus on what is real. So there's this picture in Daniel 11, the, end, the latter part of Daniel 11, of this end-time wicked ruler. And in the New Testament, that guy's called the Antichrist. And a lot of ink has been spilled over the years, over thousands of years. Every generation thinks they know who that Antichrist is. And part of the reason is because there's these kind of figures that crop up all the time because human kingdoms are bent towards becoming beasts like we've already seen in Daniel. Um, in my childhood, I mean, there was no shortage of discussion and reading all these things about who's the Antichrist. And nobody. And eventually there will be a final Antichrist, right? But John in the New Testament tells that many Antichrists have come. But, but there's a lot of people that I've met and that I've known that say, man, I'm taking imagery from the book of Revelation. They say, I'm not going to get a 666 put on my head. I'm not going to get a, a, a microchip in my hand. I'm not going to do it because Revelation talks about the mark of the beast on our head and hands. And, um, and so there's a lot of people I know that would never like put a 666 on their head, but that doesn't mean they know Jesus, okay? And so probably the devil is a little more clever than to come at you and say, hey, let's write a 666 on you. This is symbolic language. What do we do with our heads? Some of us think with our heads, right? And so having this mark of the beast on our head would be a way of saying, you think like the beast. Having a mark of the beast on our hand would be you act and treat one another like a beast. And so the question Revelation poses for us is, do I think like a beast, do I live like the beast, or do I think like the lamb and do I live like the lamb? That's a hard question. That's a challenging question, okay? And so... And that's really a, a more important question. And so your job isn't to figure out who the Antichrist is and make the Antichrist known. Your job is to figure out who Jesus is and make Jesus known. That's our job. And if you spend your time, if you spend your time with the real thing, 
you're not going to be fooled by any kind of counterfeit. If you spend your time with the real deal, the genuine article, if you spend your time with Jesus himself, if you root your life in God's word, you're not going to be fooled by any kind of imposter. And so the privileges that we have is we can choose. There's people saying, man, when that day comes, I'm not going to get any kind of 666 on my head, but they're living life on their own terms right now. Already got a 666 on their head and they don't even know it. We get to choose now who we will serve. We can serve the lamb or we can serve the beast, all right? And we get to choose now. And finally, the wise understand that everybody spends eternity somewhere. Chapter 12, everybody spends eternity somewhere. Daniel 12, at that time shall arise Michael. So Michael apparently is this archangel that's assigned to protecting and battling for the people of God. The great prince who has charge of your people. And there will be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation until that time. And so some people are looking for the specific three and a half year period or seven year period of tribulation kind of at the end of history. And others, myself included, view the whole church age. I view the whole church age as being that final week, that final 70th week we saw in Daniel 9. The whole church age since the resurrection of Jesus being the end times. Um, And so uh, Paul talks about, he uses the image of uh, the the world is in labor pains. And I've never uh, uh, given birth to a child. I know that's a surprise to to, to us, but it's never happened, but I've witnessed it a few times, and, and uh, I tried to walk uh, on eggshells in the first service. I don't think I said anything wrong, but, um, but ladies, correct me if I'm wrong on anything here. Like, labor is the, like, from the time that your water bro- breaks forward, that's all labor, right? And it's all painful, um, but it gets worse towards the end. Am I right so far? Am I getting this right? I, I, th- I think, I'd, and it gets worse towards the end, and then eventually this child is born, and there's this beautiful, joyful moment. And so it's not by accident that Paul says the whole creation is in the pains of childbirth until now. Tribulation, struggle, is, has characterized the world since the fall. And it specifically characterizes the world since the resurrection of Jesus because something new is being born. And it will get worse towards the end. And the closer you get to the end, the more the labor pains hurt, and then something new and good and beautiful is born. Okay, Many of those, verse 2, who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So he says there's two destinations. Some are going to be risen to everlasting life. Some to everlasting shame and contempt. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to the righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So those that spent their lives turning other people toward righteousness. Those who spent their lives turning other people, encouraging other people to be faithful to God. Will shine like the stars in the heavens. Um, So resurrection here is spoken to very vividly, most vividly of anywhere else in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament picks up this vision and builds on it, okay? Um, And and so, but if we were to take a poll, again, of Christians, and I promise I'm getting somewhere, uh, hopefully before the resurrection happens, we'll we'll get there, okay? Um, And if you were to poll a bunch of Christians and say, what does resurrection mean? You might get a number of different responses. So if we're going to understand what resurrection is, we need to look at the one example we have of resurrection. And the one example we have of resurrection is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was, re- he was raised in the middle of history not to die again. He wasn't resuscitated to life. He was resurrected. He put on a glorified body. 
in advance of the rest of us. And one day, the rest of us are going to be resurrected like that. Okay? So Jesus put on a body that he could eat, he could be touched, uh, but he could also pass in and out of rooms. He's a physical body, but yet it's not limited like our physical bodies are. It's, he's the same, but yet different, and that people didn't necessarily instantly recognize him. But he's bodily resurrected. Jesus isn't a phantom. He's not a ghost. He's not a figment of people's imagination. He's real and truly and physically risen, okay? And so resurrection isn't just what happens when we go to heaven after we die. That's not resurrection yet. Um, so, so after a Christian dies, we're told in the New Testament that to be absent from the body is to what? Be present with the Lord. And so we take that to mean that when, if you know Christ, when you die, the next thing you know is you are in the presence of God. And you're up in what we visualize as being in the sky or this other dimension, this heavenly dimension. You're kept there in heaven, and it's a place of joy, and it's beautiful, and that is going to be a party. But guess what? That's not the final destination, because the final destination is Resurrection Day. And Resurrection Day is going to come. Daniel tells us, Revelation tells us, Jesus tells us, Paul tells us, at the end of history as we know it, which is really the climax of history, at the new beginning of something even better, there's going to be this day of judgment. And resurrection will happen, and some will be resurrected and spend an eternity separated from God, and some will be resurrected and spend an eternity in the new creation. And when resurrection happens, you will get a new and glorified body. The scripture doesn't end with us all teleporting up to the mothership and escaping this world. The scripture ends with what? The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Heaven and earth reconciling new creation. Uh, Our hope isn't that we're going to be floating around in space forever. Our hope is that you're going to be given a glorified body in a glorified and renewed world. Okay, and if you want some help imagining this, I really encourage you to read the seventh book in the Chronicles of Narnia uh, series. It's a children's book. You're going to love it. It's going to be great. Um, It's called The Last Battle, and and C.S. Lewis gives you a great picture of what that's going to be like. It's, but, but kind of one illustration that might help is I have here um, a computer. And if you've noticed that every two, three, four years, five years maybe, your computer kind of junks out on you. And it gets to where it can't do, it starts moving really slow. And it doesn't want to do anything. And it groans. It's kind of like people uh, when they get to a certain age. It just starts moving slow. And then it gets to the point where it doesn't do anything. And then it just dies. Okay? So when this died... I was really lucky because I have this friend named Janie who's really organized. And Janie had made sure that all of my software and all of my data had been uploaded where? It was to the cloud. It had all been beamed up to the cloud. Everything that made this computer personal to me was on the cloud where it was safe and it was secure. But I didn't want it to stay on the cloud forever. That wasn't what I wanted to have access to this. And so I went and got this beautiful thing right here. I got a new computer. They can jump higher and run faster and do things that this other one couldn't even imagine doing. And what I did was I opened it up and I put in my information and everything from the cloud came down to this computer. And and suddenly the software from the cloud was put on new hardware. And that's kind of what's going to happen of course, this computer is going to die one day, so I know the, it breaks down. But what's going to happen is when you die, your software whew, goes to the cloud. All right? And one day, one day, God is going to give your software brand new hardware. 
And it's going to be hardware that's never going to break. It's never going to bust. It's always going to be new. And you're going to be able to do things that you never could have even imagined because your hardware isn't going to have the limitations of sin or sickness or loss. And listen, this matters. I'm preaching 10 minutes longer than normal because this matters. If I'm living in a house and I think that, that, the, that the destination of that house is that it's going to be bulldozed in two days, I'm not going to take out the trash. I'm not going to pay the water bill. I'm not going to paint the walls. But if I believe that the owner of that house is going to come and he's going to renovate that house and he's going to make that house right, then I'm going to take care of that house. And that impacts how we view ecology. It impacts how we view economics. It impacts how we view justice. It impacts how we treat one another. It impacts even how we treat our bodies because we are not our own. And there's going to be a day of resurrection. And, and so this also means the resurrection means the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection to come means that God's word can be trusted. And so even in areas where I don't understand what God's word says, I'm going to trust God's word because the resurrection of Christ is the vindication and the validation that God's word can be trusted. So the, the resurrection means that we can have hope today. Bear with me for four minutes. The resurrection means that we can have hope today. Johnny Erickson Tata was, uh, was um, paralyzed at the age of 18 in a diving accident. She founded Johnny and Friends, has inspired millions of people, countless people. And she shares about a time in her life when she, she's a quadriplegic and she's confined to a wheelchair and she began to envy people who could get down on their knees and pray. Do you know that there's people who wish they could get down on their knees and pray? And she said that the first thing I'll do with my new legs is to drop to glorified knees and worship Jesus who saved me. That's hope. It doesn't mean that our suffering now doesn't matter, but it means like Paul said in Romans 8, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. The resurrection means joy. The resurrection means uh, hope. I mean, and the resurrection means joy. Ultimate deliverance doesn't come until we're resurrected. So you're going to struggle. But joy is as near as calling out the name of Jesus. You can call out the name of the risen Lord right now and you can experience joy. John Piper says, The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are precious to me, not because they turn my life into a string of successes, but because they keep me from collapsing under my string of failures. The, the resurrection of Jesus means that the Christian life is not about escaping this world. The Christian life is about transforming this world. Paul unpacks 1 Corinthians 15. He unpacks the resurrection at the end of it, verse 58. He says, therefore, your labor is not in vain in the world. He doesn't say, therefore, because Christ is risen, let's beam up to the mothership. He says, therefore, because Christ is risen, your labor is not in vain. Your life matters. We can implement the resurrection of Jesus in anticipation of the resurrection of the rest of us. The resurrection means you can persevere. When you're struggling with temptation, when you're struggling with sin, when you're struggling with failure, when you're str struggling uh, with, with the stuff that I've been struggling with, when you're struggling with sickness, when we're struggling with finances, you can persevere because what I'm becoming shapes who I am today. You can persevere because you can suffer with joy because Christ has gone before. Even um, the resurrection even means justice. We're uncomfortable with this idea of some going to hell forever and some going to heaven. But for Daniel and his readers, um, this wasn't a picture of justice. Remember what happened when Daniel was taken out of the lion's den? Who got put in the lion's den? The people that, the beastly people that wanted him to suffer. And so hell is this picture of justice. And hell, for believers around the world who are suffering under beastly empires, 
the idea that God is just is really good news. But for those of us that are comfortable and complacent, the idea of God's justice is threatening and it's terrifying. Um, Hell wasn't intended to be some tool that the powerful used to wield and to threaten the weak. Hell is this incredible encouragement to the weak that God is good and God is just and the beasts will not rule forever. Hell is intended for the beasts. But unfortunately, there are many people that will be there. So let's talk for just a second about this idea of some being raised for shame and contempt and some being raised for everlasting life. Um, I wish that I could stand before you and say, look, God is like the Easter bunny. and He, he's, he just wants everybody to go. And he does. He wants everybody to go to heaven. But I wish I could tell you that just God's just going to say, you know, whatever path you want to take, that's fine. But, and if that turns out to be true, man, score. But I can't get there from God's word, okay? And, and I've committed to, t- to teaching what God's word says. And so what God's word says is that everybody's going to spend eternity somewhere. That means your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, you, me. Everybody's going to spend eternity somewhere. And the wise remember that. And so if I'm on a, the worst flight I ever took was to a place called Appleton, Wisconsin. Nothing against Appleton, but the flight was terrible, okay? The best flight I ever took was when Son and I, a couple years ago, went, took a little anniversary trip to Cancun. I don't remember the flight, but I was really excited about the destination. It made the flight worth it. But imagine you were flying to Appleton, Wisconsin, and you're sitting in the airplane, and you're saying, man, it's not fair that I'm going to Appleton, Wisconsin. Why won't the pilot just take me to Cancun? Would that make sense? The pilot's a nice guy. Why won't he just take me to Cancun? Well, you're on a plane destined for Appleton. But imagine when you were walking through the airport, you saw a pilot, and he said, look, I'm going to Cancun. Will you give me your ticket to Appleton and let me give you my ticket to Cancun? Will you exchange your destination for my destination? Would you do that? Yeah, you would. Most of us would, unless you hate Cancun, and then I don't know what to do for you, but... Listen, Romans tells us, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. To be a fallen human means you are on a plane and that plane is destined for hell. Those that don't know Jesus are on a plane and that plane is going somewhere. It's destined somewhere. It's destined for hell because we're fallen. But the captain of the plane is in the airport lobby and for whoever will trust him, he's saying, ah, let me take your ticket and let me give you my ticket. Let me exchange your destination for mine. It sounds more than fair, doesn't it? But we can't get on the plane to Appleton and then complain that it's going to Appleton, okay? Get off the plane you're on. By faith, commit your life to the one who's got the tickets in his hand and then his destiny becomes your destiny. It's the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus went where you and I deserved to go, the cross, so that you and me could go where he deserved to go, Cancun or new creation, right? So I want you to think as the band comes up, does that sound like a good offer 
to take the tickets to where my life is heading, to my destination, and exchange those for Jesus' destination? Have I done that? Have I placed my trust in Jesus? Have I committed my life to Him? Where am I going to be resurrected to? Shame and contempt? Or life everlasting? What's your next step? Is it to trust Christ? Is it to follow Him in baptism? Is it to join our church family? Let's stand together.